The following Marx Daily Apple articles were written by Marxism and are narrated by Brock Armstrong. Welcome to Marx Daily Apple Best of 2014, Volume 3, Gut Health, featuring 16 Things That Affect Your Gut Bacteria, A Primal Primer, Leaky Gut, The Definitive Guide to Resistant Starch, and Resistant Starch, your questions answered. Sixteen Things That Affect Your Gut Bacteria A while ago, we explored many of the ways our gut bacteria affect us, focusing on the lesser-known effects like anti-nutrient nullification, vitamin manufacture, and neurotransmitter production. Today, we're going to discuss all the ways that we know we can affect our gut bacteria. It turns out that the food we eat, the amount of sun we get, whether we eat organic or not, the supplements we take, and even the kind of nuts or chocolate we decide to eat, just to name a few factors, can change the composition and function of our gut microbiota for the good or for the bad. We may still have a lot to learn about this gut stuff, but the bulk of the evidence says that we do have the power, and responsibility if you care to be healthy, to affect the health of our gut microbiota. Here are 16 things to do, eat, avoid, and or heed. Fermentable fibers. I've discussed this variable to death, but it may be the single most important pro-gut biome dietary modification we can enact. Without fermentable fibers, our gut bacteria just aren't getting the food they need to maintain the population, let alone grow it. Fermented foods. From sauerkraut to pickles, to kimchi to kefir, to condiments to high meat, fermented foods have been a consistent part of the human diet for many thousands of years. And, while it's unlikely previous generations had detailed knowledge of the gut biome, today we know that fermented food plays an important role in shaping the health of our guts. Yogurt, one of my favorites, often changes the composition of the gut biome for the better. But even when it has no effect on the population or composition of a microbiome, fermented foods can change the way the existing population works. In one study, for example, bacterial strains isolated from fermented milk didn't colonize the gut, but led to increased microbial expression of carbohydrate-metabolizing enzymes. In another study, yogurt and probiotic supplementation allowed lactose-intolerant subjects to tolerate a greater amount of dietary lactose by changing their colonic bacteria. Fermented foods aren't a one-and-done deal. You have to maintain an ongoing relationship with them in order to enjoy the full benefits and sustain the colonization. It's more accurate to consider them necessary foods we need to eat regularly rather than supplements or medicines. Polyphenols Even though we usually think of the polyphenols found in blueberries, red wine, green tea, and other fruits and vegetables as plant pharmaceuticals that we absorb and utilize instantly, their bioavailability in humans is controversial. Emerging evidence suggests we derive many of the benefits through interaction between phenolic compounds and our gut bacteria which consume the glycan bonds holding the polyphenols together and render them available for absorption. The glycans are prebiotics for the bacteria, and the liberated phenols are more bioavailable to us. Even red wine polyphenols may have prebiotic effects on the gut flora, though keep in mind that some of us have different reactions to it. Dark Chocolate Dark chocolate falls under the polyphenols and fermentable fiber categories, so this section was probably unnecessary. But come on, it's dark chocolate, a combination of gut-supportive polyphenols and prebiotic fiber so delicious that we should welcome any and all justifications for its consumption, however redundant they may be. Pistachios Pistachios are another special package of fiber and polyphenols with potent prebiotic power. 
Other nuts like almonds aren't too shabby, but pistachios beat them soundly in a head-to-head matchup, producing a biome richer in butyrate-secreting bacteria. And, since they usually come in shells, overconsumption is hard if you're worried about self-control. Resistant starch. Resistant starch, or RS, is a unique kind of starch that humans by and large cannot digest. It's not a fermentable fiber, but it acts like it. Upon its consumption, RS travels mostly unperturbed through the digestive tract into the colon, where the colonic bacteria, who can digest the stuff, feast on it, get frisky, and reproduce. Multiple studies indicate that RS consumption generally leads to an increase in beneficial colonic bacteria and a reduction in pathogenic colonic bacteria, including a boost to bifidobacteria and a decrease in firmicutes. Animal fiber. Carnivorous animals like cheetahs treat otherwise indigestible animal parts like prebiotics, displaying evidence of healthier gut bacteria when eating whole rabbits than when eating beef muscle meat. As animals with a long prehistory of consuming other animals, it's a good bet that humans retain this ability as well. The gristly bits at the end of a drumstick, the snapping tendons that floss your teeth as you eat a turkey leg, the crunchy cartilage you have to scrape off the oxtails with your front teeth, the skin on a pork belly. These are examples of animal tissue with the potential to affect our gut bacteria. Vitamin D status. Vitamin D helps regulate the immune system, as we know. Low vitamin D status, or low exposure to UV radiation, is consistently linked to increased autoimmune diseases, allergies, infections, and other immune conditions. Meanwhile, our gut bacteria comprises a huge chunk of our immune system, modulating the allergenicity of food fragments, crowding out pathogens, and regulating the development and maintenance of our immune cells. Could one affect the other? Absolutely! A recent paper in rodents showed that vitamin D status regulates the microbiome, with a deficiency causing dysbiosis and inducing colitis. Exercise In a recent Dear Mark, I discussed a new study showing that professional rugby players participating in an intense training camp had a more diverse and healthier gut microbiome than age and BMI matched controls, despite experiencing a ton of acute stress, all the exercise. While the rugby players also ate more gut-modulating foods like fruits, vegetables, and protein, and snacked less than their control groups, and this may have improved their gut diversity, this study is the first to show that lots of exercise is compatible with and even supportive of a healthy gut flora. The flip side is that lots of exercise without adequate support, recovery, rest, good food, sleep, will probably be enough of a stressor to negatively impact gut flora. Don't overtrain and don't undertrain. Food variety. Much of the gut bacteria we get comes riding on the food we eat and our gut bacteria learn how to break down certain foods from the bacteria riding on the food. One example of this is that in most Japanese people, some of their gut bacteria have picked up the genes for seaweed digestion from the bacteria found on the seaweed. The seaweed bacteria taught the resident gut flora how to handle the food. This gene transfer doesn't happen with a single seaweed meal. They need sustained exposure to the seaweed and its bacteria. A recent study in fish even supports this idea. Fish eating the most diverse diet had the least diverse gut microbiome. So variety is good, just not too much. You want enough variety that you expose yourself and your flora to colorful fruits and veggies, fermentable fibers, and healthy fats, but not so much that you never eat the same thing twice. Eating some staple foods on a regular basis will allow you to develop the gut flora equipped to break them down. Be consistent. Antibiotics. Of course antibiotics affect the gut flora. Their stated purpose is to negatively affect microbial life. Use them if it's medically necessary, but be advised that most antibiotics are indiscriminate killers, World War II era carpet bombing entire cities of bacteria. They get the pathogens, unless they're resistant of course, 
and the good guys, reducing the microbial diversity and shifting the balance of the microbiome to favor unwanted strains. These changes may be lasting without serious or sustained prebiotic and probiotic interventions. Unfortunately, with even doctors prescribing them to patients with conditions for which antibiotics don't help, medical necessity is difficult for the layperson to parse. Probiotics Like with fermented foods, we should think of probiotic supplements as friends. Not those friends you always tell, we should totally hang out more, when you run into them, but never do. Real friends, the ones you have over for dinner every week. The ones you include in group texts that go for months without breaking. That's how you should treat probiotics. Like real friends whose company you genuinely enjoy and who come in capsules and require refrigeration. Take probiotics with food or 30 minutes before meals. As our bodies are meant to consume probiotics with food, i.e. fermented food, they seem to survive the transit through our gut when taken this way, as opposed to after a meal. Roundup Skeptic science writers and corporatist apologists are quick to point out that glyphosate, the active herbicide used in Roundup, is non-toxic to humans. Roundup kills weeds by disrupting the shikimate pathway, a pathway involved in the biosynthesis of several crucial amino acids. Human cells are relatively unaffected by the herbicide because our cells don't use the shikimate pathway. There's nothing to disrupt. All good? Unfortunately, no. Bacteria also employ the shikimate pathway, and we've got an awful lot of them living inside our bodies and handling some very important tasks, including immune function, digestion, production of neurotransmitters, mood regulation, and many more. This means our gut bacteria may be susceptible to Roundup residue on the foods we eat, and the air we breathe, the water we drink, and so on. This isn't a big issue for people eating primal because the biggest offenders are genetically modified soybeans and corn, and all the related food products. Two foods you likely aren't eating. That said, your exposure may be elevated if the food you eat eats a lot of Roundup-laden soy and corn like CAFO livestock, dairy, and battery-farmed poultry. All the more reason to favor pastured animal products. Smoking. Or, rather, cessation of smoking. Smokers who give up smoking experience weight gain and more microbial diversity. The media reports focused mostly on the weight gain, but I think the shift in gut bacteria toward the mostly beneficial actinobacteria and away from the proteobacteria, home of a lot of your bad guys, is the most significant news. Time. It takes time to build your gut flora. Initial changes happen rapidly, but sustaining them requires giving your bugs time to adapt and dig in. If you try resistant starch, don't give up after a day. Give it a few weeks. If you try probiotics or sauerkraut, take them consistently for an extended period of time before throwing in the towel and assuming they don't work. If you're expecting your monthly gym foray to positively affect your gut, think again. Dirt. I almost forgot. Get dirty. Don't be a clean freak if you can help it. I'm not saying you shouldn't wash your hands after wiping, handling raw chicken, or dumpster diving, but be a bit more relaxed when it comes to getting your hands dirty. Garden, and don't freak out if you misplace your gloves. Eat a fresh carrot pulled straight from the ground. Enjoy a soil smoothie twice a week. Pet a dog. Expose yourself to the outside world, soil, and grime, and dust, and dirt, and all on a regular basis. I'm kidding about one of those. Never garden without gloves. Bacteria are everywhere. You really can't avoid it. And most of it isn't out to kill you. Don't be overwhelmed by this information. Don't feel like anything and everything you do can have a drastic effect on your gut bacteria. For all the warnings and studies and focus, our gut bacteria are resilient buggers. They have evolved, and are still evolving, to respond and react to the environment. If something affects them negatively, they can bounce back. And even in the case of major changes wrought by antibiotics or months of stress or medical procedures, you can help them bounce back. Information like this should empower you. 
When I learn how the fate of my gut flora, or muscle mass, or bone density, or eyesight, ultimately rests in my hands, I am excited and eager to assume the mantle of responsibility. That's total freedom. And it's the most important thing in this life. It's all we've got. Many health experts believe that gut bacteria represents the next breakthrough in optimizing health and immune function. When you nourish healthy intestinal flora with primal eating habits and the high-potency probiotics of primal flora, you protect yourself from the everyday illnesses and compromised digestion that are common in stressful modern life. The unique strains of probiotics and primal flora help you improve digestion and regularity, bolster immune function, and can even assist you with weight loss by optimizing fat metabolism. One daily capsule is all it takes optimal health 24 7 order primal flora today at primalblueprint.com to take advantage of our risk-free trial a primal primer leaky gut as i mentioned in the 10 principles of primal living finally getting mainstream media coverage post several readers emailed asking about leaky gut what is it how do i know if i have it why should i care if i have it what do I do if I have it? And so on. Turns out many, and maybe most people, have but a vague idea of what leaky gut actually means. Today, I'm going to fix that. In most popular conceptions of human physiology, the gut exists primarily as a passive conduit along which food travels and breaks down for digestion and absorption. It's where bacteria hang out and digestive enzymes go to work. It's a place an inert tunnel made of flesh and mucus. Lots of things happen there, but the gut itself isn't doing much. Except that the gut serves another very important and active role as a dynamic, selective barrier between us and the external world with all its nasties. Dynamic in that it responds differently depending on what's trying to get through. Selective in that it's supposed to let in good things and keep out harmful things. Lining the gut are epithelial cells whose cell membranes fuse together to form protein complexes called tight junctions. The tight junction is the doorman. These are the dynamic, selective parts of the gut. Like the doorman, the tight junction's job is to discern between what belongs inside and what doesn't. What gets passage through the gut lining into our body and what is denied? Tight junctions keep out pathogens, antigens, and toxins while admitting nutrients and water. That's in a perfect world, though. Sometimes the doorman shows up to work drunk. Sometimes the doorman can't turn down the $100 bill and fold it in a handshake. Sometimes the doorman lets the pretty girl and all her friends cut in line. Many variables can affect the doorman's ability to discern between who belongs and who doesn't, and the same goes for the intestinal tight junctions. How do you know if you have leaky gut? Everyone's gut is a little leaky and a little permissive, if not downright permeable. One way is to take an intestinal permeability test. You drink a solution containing a pre-measured amount of mannitol and lactulose, two indigestible sugars. You collect your urine over the next six hours and measure the amount of excreted mannitol and lactulose to determine how much permeated through your gut. Another way is to measure levels of blood zonulin, a reliable marker of intestinal permeability. You might have trouble convincing your doctor to order this one. You can also look at the list of conditions commonly associated with elevated intestinal permeability. If you have any or all of them, you may have leaky gut. Put another way, if you have leaky gut, you may be at greater risk for some of these. What are they? Celiac disease. When gluten is broken down into fragments in the gut, those fragments induce the release of zonulin, which tells the tight junctions to become more permeable. This happens to everyone whose gut comes in contact with those gluten fragments, but the effect is enhanced in people with celiac. Their gluten-induced leaky gut is way more leaky than it should be, and it stays leaky long after the gluten has gone. In fact, before direct testing for gluten antibodies and intestinal damage became widespread, a common test for celiac used to be the very same intestinal permeability assessment I just mentioned. 
Inflammatory Bowel Disease, IBD. Patients with Crohn's disease and inflammatory bowel disease characterized by severe inflammation of the gut lining tend to have leaky gut. And in general, IBD, which includes Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, high intestinal permeability precedes the development of the disease. Irritable Bowel Syndrome, IBS. As discussed recently, IBS patients often show increased gut permeability. Some researchers suggest that leaky gut leads to the kind of chronic, low-level inflammation that characterizes IBS. Asthma. There is a high prevalence of leaky gut in people with moderate to severe asthma, though researchers aren't sure whether it's a cause or consequence of the asthma. Food allergies and intolerances. The transportation of the food allergen across the gut lining appears to be a necessary step in the development of a food allergy, and a 2011 review concluded that an overly leaky gut facilitates this transportation and leads to the inducement of allergy. Autism. Children with autism and their first-degree relatives tend to have abnormal gut permeability, suggesting a gene environment component to autism. This is present in some, but not all, people with autism. Rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, and other autoimmune diseases. Both RA and AS have been linked to leaky gut, and the connection may hold for other autoimmune diseases too. Obesity and metabolic syndrome. Both obesity and metabolic syndrome are often linked with intestinal permeability, and a recent paper explores all the potential mechanisms that might explain the link. Depression. By some accounts, 35% of depressed patients have leaky gut. Eczema. Going back as far as 1986, researchers have found leaky gut to be common in eczema patients. Interesting, huh? Leaky gut really gets around. It may not be the whole story, and some of these connections may be coincidental, but plausible mechanisms exist for most of them, and I'm confident that fixing leaky gut will improve many seemingly disparate health problems. Plus, even if it wasn't the proximate cause of your health problems, leaky gut probably isn't helping you get better, and you should probably try to fix it. Multiple feedback loops which make teasing apart cause and effect nearly impossible also make it possible to step in the middle of the loop and break it up. What should you do? First, avoid things that might cause it. Gluten. Gluten begets gliadin, releases zonulin, induces leaky gut. I discussed this in the celiac section before, but it's important to reiterate that gliadin has this leaky effect on every gut, not just celiacs. Celiacs just get it worse than non-celiacs. Stress. Stress can directly induce leaky gut, and stress can take many forms. As we all know, bad finances, marital strife, unemployment, too much exercise, lack of sleep, extended combat training, and chronic under-eating all qualify as significant stressors with the potential to cause leaky gut, especially chronically and in concert. Too much alcohol. Ethanol increases intestinal permeability by changing the gene expression of the proteins involved in the tight junction formation. If you do drink, be sure to follow the best practices and definitely do not get drunk on an empty stomach. Alcohol also depletes zinc, which is a crucial pro-gut nutrient. Poor sleep habits. In one recent study, mice whose circadian rhythms were disrupted were more susceptible to liver damage and alcohol-induced intestinal permeability. NSAIDs. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like aspirin and ibuprofen can be helpful in certain situations, but they are far from benign. One of the worst and most pronounced effects is leaky gut. Then, take proactive steps to improve gut barrier function. Take whey protein isolate and glutamine. Both supplements have been shown to reduce leaky gut in patients with Crohn's disease. Try resistant starch and other prebiotics. 
whether potato starch, green bananas, plantains, mung bean starch, inulin powder, Jerusalem artichokes, leeks, pectin, or apples, start eating RS and other prebiotics on a regular basis. They increase butyrate production, which reduces intestinal permeability, and support the growth and maintenance of healthy microbial populations. Take probiotics and or, preferably and, eat fermented food. Prebiotics are important, but you also need to provide the right gut bugs if you're deficient. You can do it with both supplements and food. Lactobacillus rhamnosus and l rutery supplements reduced leaky gut and improved symptoms in kids with atopic dermatitis. Lactobacillus rhamnosus also helps restore the gut barrier in kids with acute gastroenteritis. In rats with leaky gut, yogurt improved gut barrier function. Get adequate sunlight and or take vitamin D3 supplements. Vitamin D helps protect against injuries to the intestinal lining, while a vitamin D deficiency promotes intestinal permeability and inflammation. Get enough zinc. Oysters, red meat, supplements. Zinc supplementation reduces leaky gut. Make broth, eat gelatinous cuts of meat. I don't have any scientific references for this one, but it's such a staple piece of advice in the healing your gut scene that it's worth including. Plus, oxtails are magic, and science can't quite explain magic just yet. Exercise intelligently. Intense, protracted exercise induces leaky gut. This is normally transient and totally manageable, but if taken to the extreme, as in chronic cardio, exercise-induced leaky gut can become a chronic condition. The same goes for any kind of chronic exercise. Even too much strength training can probably do it, though you'd have to do a ton of volume without much rest. Meanwhile, moderate exercise improves gut barrier function. The tried-and-true triumvirate of lifting heavy things, walking lots, and sprinting occasionally is the safest bet. If all of this stuff seems daunting and far-reaching, that's because it is daunting and far-reaching. The gut affects nearly everything. But look at the bright side. Fixing your gut may be the key to good health for many of you. It's actually quite empowering, don't you think? Are you dealing with nagging health issues? Wanting to bust out of a body composition plateau? Frustrated by mainstream medical care that either conflicts with or is uninformed about your primal practices? Finally, you can engage one-on-one -on -one with a respected medical expert aligned with primal principles. Primal Advantage Consulting with Dr. Kate Shanahan blends the best of medical science with ancestral health principles and her experience in metabolic consulting with everyone from regular patients in her clinic to elite professional athletes like the Los Angeles Lakers. And you you get to take advantage. Work one-on-one -on -one with Dr. Kate to fine-tune your dietary habits for weight loss, peak performance, and minimizing disease risk. Visit PrimalBlueprint.com to find out more and enroll in the Primal Advantage program. The Definitive Guide to Resistant Starch A few years back, I briefly covered a throwaway Yahoo article about how carbs will make you lose weight because so many readers had emailed about it. It turned out that the carbs in the article were resistant starch, a type of carbohydrate that our digestive enzymes cannot break down. I'll admit it now with regret that I didn't look as deeply into the matter as I might have. I didn't dismiss resistant starch, but I did downplay its importance, characterizing it as just another type of prebiotic, important but not necessary so long as you were eating other fermentable fibers. While technically true, we're fast learning that resistant starch may be a special type of prebiotic with a special place in the human diet. Before I go any further, though, a series of hat tips to Richard Nicoley, Tater Tot Tim, and Dr. BG, whose early and ongoing research into the benefits, real-world implications, and clinical applications of resistant starch have proved to be a real asset for the ancestral health community. Oh, and I even hear tell that they're writing a book on the subject. Interesting.
In subsequent Dear Mark articles, I've since given resistant starch a closer, more substantial look, and today I'm going to give it the definitive guide treatment. What is resistant starch? When you think about starch, what comes to mind? Glucose, carbs, elevated blood sugar, insulin spikes, glycogen repletion, Basically, we think about starch that we, meaning our host cells, can digest, absorb, and metabolize as glucose, for better or worse. Officially, resistant starch is the sum of starch and products of starch degradation not absorbed in the small intestine of healthy individuals. Instead of being cleaved in twain by our enzymes and absorbed as glucose, resistant starch, RS, travels unscathed through the small intestine into the colon, where colonic gut flora metabolize it into short-chain fatty acids. Thus, it's resistant to digestion by the host. There are four types of resistant starch. RS type 1, starch bound by indigestible plant cell walls found in beans, grains, and seeds. RS type 2, starch that is intrinsically indigestible in the raw state due to its high amylose content, found in potatoes, bananas, plantains, type 2 RS becomes accessible upon heating. RS type 3, retrograde starch, when some starches have been cooked, cooling them, fridge or freezer, changes the structure and makes it more resistant to digestion found in cooked and cooled potatoes, grains, and beans. RS type 4, industrial resistant starch, type 4 RS doesn't occur naturally and has been chemically modified, commonly found in high maize resistant starch. It's almost certain that different RS types have somewhat different effects on our gut flora, but the specifics have yet to be elucidated. In general, RS, of any type, acts fairly similarly across the various types. Where do we get it? We can get RS from food. The richest food sources are raw potatoes, green bananas, plantains, cooked and cooled potatoes, cooked and cooled rice, parboiled rice, and cooked and cooled legumes. We can get RS from supplementary isolated starch sources. The best sources are raw potato starch, plantain flour, green banana flour, and cassava tapioca starch. Raw, not sprouted, mung beans are a good source of RS, so mung bean starch, commonly available in Asian grocers, will probably work too. The most reliable way to get lots of RS fast is with raw potato starch. There are about 8 grams of RS in a tablespoon of the most popular brand, Bob's Red Mill Unmodified Potato Starch. What does it do for us? Like any other organism, gut bacteria requires sustenance. They need to eat, and certain food sources are better than others. In essence, resistant starch is top-shelf food for your gut bugs. That's the basic and, most important, function of RS. What are the health benefits of consuming RS? What does the research say? Preferentially feeds good bacteria responsible for butyrate production. It even promotes greater butyrate production than other prebiotics. Since the resident gut flora produce the butyrate, and everyone has different levels of different flora, the degree of butyrate production varies according to the individual, but resistant starch consistently results in lots of butyrate across nearly every subject who consumes it. Butyrate is crucial because it's the prime energy source of our colonic cells, almost as if they're designed for steady exposure to butyrate, and it may be responsible for most of the other RS-related benefits. It improves insulin sensitivity. Sure enough, it improves insulin sensitivity, even in people with metabolic syndrome. It improves the integrity and function of the gut. Resistant starch basically increases colonic hypertrophy, making it more robust and improving its functionality. It also inhibits endotoxin from getting into circulation and reduces leaky gut, which could have positive ramifications on allergies and autoimmune conditions. It lowers the blood glucose response to food. 
One reason some people avoid even minimal amounts of carbohydrate is the blood glucose response. Theirs is too high. Resistant starch lowers the postprandial blood glucose spike. This reduction may also extend to subsequent meals. It reduces fasting blood sugar. This is one of the most commonly mentioned benefits of RS, and the research seems to be backing it up. It increases satiety. In a recent human study, a large dose of resistant starch increased satiety and decreased subsequent food intake. It may preferentially bind to and expel bad bacteria. This is only preliminary, but there's evidence that resistant starch may actually treat small intestinal bacteria overgrowth by flushing the pathogenic bacteria out in the feces. It's also been found to be an effective treatment for cholera when added to the rehydration formula given to the patients. The cholera bacteria attach themselves to the RS granules almost immediately for expulsion. It enhances magnesium absorption. Probably because it improves gut function and integrity, resistant starch increases dietary magnesium absorption. What do user anecdotes say? It improves body composition. I've heard reports of lowered body fat and increased lean muscle mass after supplementing with or increasing dietary intake of RS. Seeing as RS consumption promotes increased fat oxidization after meals, this appears to be possible, or even likely. It improves thyroid function. Many RS supplementers have noted increases in body temperature, which is a rough indicator of thyroid function. It improves sleep, conferring the ability to hold and direct, in real time, private viewings of vivid movie-esque dreams throughout the night. I've noticed this too and suspect it has something to do with increased GABA, gamma-aminobutyric acid, from the increased butyrate. Another possibility is that resistant starch is feeding serotonin-producing gut bacteria, and the serotonin is being converted to melatonin when darkness falls. It increases mental calm. Many people report feeling very zen after increasing RS intake, with reductions in anxiety and perceived stress. The latest science indicates that our gut flora can impact our brain, and specific probiotics are being explored as anti-anxiety agents, so these reports may very well have some merit. Are there any downsides? For all the success stories, the message boards are also rife with negative reactions to RS. They take it, maybe too much to start, and get gas, bloating, cramping, diarrhea or constipation, a sense of blockage, headaches, and even heartburn. I think resistant starch supplementation may be a good measuring stick for the health of your gut. Folks with good gut function tend to respond positively, while people with compromised guts respond poorly. The gas, bloating, cramps, and everything else are indicators that your gut needs work. But it's not the fault of the resistant starch, per se. What to do if you're one of the unlucky ones? You've got a few options. You could skip it altogether. I think this is unwise, personally, because the role of fermentable fibers, including RS, in the evolution of the human gut biome and immune system has been monumental and, frankly, irreplaceable. There's a lot of potential there, and we'd be remiss to ignore it. You could incorporate probiotics. You need the guys that eat the RS to get the benefits of consuming RS. And sure, you have gut flora. We all do for the most part, except after a colonic sterilization before a colonoscopy or a massive round of antibiotics, maybe. But you don't have the right kinds. Probiotics, especially the soil-based ones, the kind we'd be exposed to if we worked outside, got our hands dirty, and generally lived a human existence closer to that of our ancient ancestors, really seem to mesh well with resistant starch. You should reduce the dose. Some people can jump in with a full 20 to 30 grams of resistant starch and have no issues. Others need to ramp things up more gradually. Start with a teaspoon of your refined RS source, or even half a teaspoon, and get acclimated to that before you increase the dose. 
You could eat your RS in food form. Potato starch and other supplementary forms of RS are great because they're easy and reliable, but it's also a fairly novel way to consume RS. You might be better off eating half a green banana instead of a tablespoon of potato starch. My experience? The first time I tried potato starch, I got a lot of gas. Not the end of the world, and I realize gas is a natural product of fermentation, just unpleasant. It died down after a few days, but it was only after I added in some of my Primal Flora probiotic that I started seeing the oft-cited benefits, better sleep, vivid dreams, and more even keel. Now I do potato starch intermittently. I'm very suspicious of eating anything on a daily basis. I tend to cycle foods, supplements, exercises, everything. Gas production goes up every time I restart the potato starch, but not unpleasantly so, and it subsides relatively quickly, especially when I take the probiotics. So there's a learning curve to RS. It's not a cure-all, but neither is anything else. It's merely an important, arguably necessary piece of a very large, very complex puzzle. Resistant starch is vitally important for the gut, and thus overall health, but it's not the only thing we need. It's likely that other forms of fermentable fiber, prebiotics, act synergistically with RS. Hey, it's almost like eating actual food with its broad and varied range of bioactive compounds, polyphenols, fibers, resistant starches, vitamins, and minerals tends to have the best effect on our gut biome. You can certainly enhance the picture with isolated, refined, resistant starches and fibers like unmodified potato starch, but they can't replace what our bodies really expect. The food. Hey Primal Podcast listeners, have you been wanting and waiting to take your health or your clients to peak levels? Then it's time to enroll in the Primal Blueprint Expert Certification. Library. Resistant Starch, your questions answered. The definitive guide to resistant starch garnered a lot of attention. While the article covered a lot of ground, many of you had lingering questions and concerns about the topic. What is and isn't resistant starch? How much resistant starch should I be eating? Why is resistant starch good for me? What is resistant starch again? I don't blame you. It's a confusing one that appears, on first glance, to challenge some of the fundamental primal ideas about food and nutrition. Today, I'm going to answer as many questions as I can. Hopefully, it clears up most of the bigger questions. Let's get right to it. Do the benefits of RS outweigh the negatives of rice, legumes, potatoes, etc.? Great question. Rice and potatoes, yes. I've already spoken on both of those subjects in previous posts, and my basic conclusion is that both rice and potatoes are relatively toxin-free sources of starch that an insulin-sensitive, sufficiently active individual can likely consume in moderation without ill effect. For both foods, the negative effects can come from the carb load they represent, which is simply too high for some people. But by cooking and cooling them, you reduce the carb load, reduce the glucose response, and improve your insulin sensitivity. In essence, any negatives are mitigated by the emphasis on the resistant starch. If you have trouble with glucose tolerance and you're looking to drop weight, you should still exercise caution with these foods and heed the carb curve. 
but preparing them in a way that increases the RS content will only make them less problematic. One note, potatoes are iffy for people with nightshade intolerance, so there's that to consider. Legumes? I'm not sure. I strongly suspect the health benefits ascribed to legumes are solely due to the prebiotic RS effects, which interest me but are not the sole province of the legume. But the fact remains that many people simply don't tolerate legumes very well. It could be that some of the tolerance issues stem from disrupted gut flora, and introducing RS will ameliorate your troubles. But who knows? We're still learning a lot. In the meantime, I'm not too interested in soaking beans. There's nothing essential about them, so long as we're getting RS from other sources. Next question. I'm a little confused. How does one go about adding RS in whole food form without doubling or tripling their normal daily carb intake? I can't see eating one to two green bananas and a couple of raw potatoes each day in addition to normal amounts of carbs from veggies and fruit. I usually have one serving of fruit a day, berries if possible, and still staying under 100 to 150 carbs. Please enlighten me. Believe it or not, you can easily eat green bananas without tripling your digestible carb intake. And that's the key. You don't digest these carbs. Your gut flora do. An average large banana contains a hair over 30 grams of carbohydrate. If it's green and totally unripe, the majority of that carbohydrate will be resistant starch that your body does not digest into glucose. You'll know you're getting the good stuff when the banana is crispy and leaves a chalky aftertaste in your mouth. Pleasant, I know, but added to a smoothie, it's actually quite nice. In fact, here's a recipe I've been playing around with. A cup of milk, coconut, almond, cow, goat, etc. Large green banana peeled and sliced, quarter teaspoon of vanilla extract, quarter teaspoon of cinnamon, half teaspoon of honey. May be unnecessary depending on the sweetness of your bananas. Next question. I assume that the time of the day you take RS does not matter? Well, it shouldn't. Once you've established a healthy population of butyrate-producing gut bugs, they don't need to be fed at a certain time every day. They're quite malleable and adaptive, and they'll also begin feeding on other fermentable fibers in your foods. Next question. What is the reason to supplement RS instead of getting it from food? How much RS is good enough, and how much real food would meet that amount? Supplemental RS is just easier, and most of the research in support of it has used supplemental RS-rich powders, so we know it works. But real food probably works even better since it comes with vitamins, minerals, and polyphenols, which have prebiotic effects in their own right. And it most closely resembles the way our early ancestors consumed RS. Let's see. If you can work your way up to between 30 and 40 grams of RS, whether from food or from powders, you'll be in a good place. That's the dose used in much of the research, and it's where butyrate production is maximized. What does that look like in food form? 600 grams of baked, then cooled potato has about 25 grams. You can even lightly heat the potato after it's been cooled and retain the RS. One large, 8-inch, green, fully unripe banana has somewhere between 20 and 25 grams. A large green plantain has about 50 grams. Not the most palatable, but it's doable, especially if you slice it into discs and dehydrate into chips. A smoothie masks it well too. Next question. Any idea of heating the potato starch, like using it as a thickening agent in soups and stews, negates its RS function? Yes, the RS will be completely negated. Sorry. It does make a good thickener, though. Next question. Cooked and cooled rice, as in sushi? Or does the vinegar somehow negate the benefit of the resistant starch? Yes, cold sushi rice will contain RS. Good sushi restaurants generally keep their rice at room temperature, though, so I'm not sure you'll get the retrograde RS effects unless you go for a grocery store deli case sushi. And hey, I actually like that stuff, so there's no shame in eating it. 
Just avoid gas station sushi if you know what's good for you. Vinegar shouldn't affect it either way. Vinegar does reduce the blood glucose response when consumed with carb-rich foods, so it might be a nice supplement in its own right if that's an effect you're after. Next question. So that pizza crust recipe has mostly tapioca starch flour in it, also not potato starch potato flour, and if I make the crusts and freeze them and then reheat and eat, would the RS still be usable? Same as the potatoes and rice, I would think. So perhaps that is a way to go on the RS? I don't think it works like that. For retrograde RS to form, it has to be in its whole form. Potatoes, not potato starch. Cassava, not tapioca starch. Rice, not rice flour. Next question. Question about cooked and cooled. What the heck does that mean? So I cook it and cool it. Does that mean I have to eat it cold to get the resistant starch? If I zap my bowl of bean soup and rice that came out of the fridge, when does it lose the resistance to digestion? Retrograde RS cooked and cooled is maintained during subsequent heating. You can even heat it and cool it once again to create even more RS. So you don't have to eat it cold, though I would advise against reheating a cooked and cooled RS source into oblivion. Keep the heat relatively low. Next question. Should the carbohydrate from resistant starches, for example, a cooked and cooled potato, still be counted in daily consumption if it's not digested? Some of it should still be counted because not all, or even most, of the starch is resistant. Most of it is good old digestible glucose, but you can subtract the 4 to 5 grams of RS from the 21 grams of total starch in every 100 grams of cooked and cooled potato. Not bad, eh? And remember, it's not that the 4 to 5 grams becomes inert, useless matter passing through your body. They are bioactive, just not with the biology of the host. They turn into fatty acids that fuel your colon and improve your ability to tolerate the digestible glucose you consumed along with them. Next question. Is just eating pistachios or other seeds enough RS to do the trick? Probably not. To hit the 30 to 40 grams of resistant starch that maximizes benefits in most trials with pistachios would require a lot of money, of calories, and of shelling. 100 grams of roasted pistachios house around 3.5 grams of RS. That may be in the shell, and raw pistachios may have more, but either way, it's not a huge amount. Not bad, not great. The beauty of the less calorically dense RS sources is that they allow a more varied diet. It's nothing to add a couple of tablespoons of potato starch to your diet. That said, pistachios are potent prebiotics. One recent study found that they increased butyrate-producing bacteria in the colon, outperforming almonds. You should definitely eat pistachios, but I think you should also eat other more concentrated sources of RS. That's the beauty of it all. It's not a competition. We can eat pistachios and other things at the same time, without disrupting the effectiveness of either. Next question. Would hummus fit the bill as cooked and cooled legumes? Yes. Hummus seems to qualify even though it's not primal. 100 grams of hummus has 4.1 grams of RS. Hummus made from soaked chickpeas will have more than hummus made from canned chickpeas, however. Next question. What would be the best way to gradually incorporate RS into the diet for a person that has gut inflammation and chronic bloating? You need probiotics. And in your case, I doubt yogurt or kefir will be sufficient. Try something soil-based, as in the same types of probiotic organisms that Grok was getting on a regular basis simply from living. These are likely the microbes to which our guts are evolutionarily accustomed. Primal flora works, worked for me with RS, it provides a high dose of two specific soil-based strains that have been shown to be helpful in clinical trials. You could also go more broad-spectrum with more soil-based strains but lower concentrations. Start really, really, really small with the RS. 
If you're going with the unmodified potato starch, start with a quarter to half a teaspoon. It will look like almost nothing. Increase it by a quarter teaspoon slowly as comfort allows. If that doesn't work, but I imagine it would, and your gut is really compromised, I suggest trying Dr. BG's Gut Healing Protocol. It involves probiotics, prebiotics, and a number of other more drastic, but potentially necessary steps. The good doc is a bit wild, but in a good way. Just read her stuff at least twice and you'll figure it out. Reading it out loud seems to help too. She certainly has a way with language. Next question. Does this mean I can start eating sushi and potato salad? Smiley face, question mark, smiley face. Well, you can choose to eat anything you want, of course. That's never changed. What this does indicate is that those foods, when cooled, have unique effects. Different than if you were to eat a bowl of hot steamed rice or a large baked potato fresh from the oven. The preponderance of evidence suggests that the potato salad and the cold sushi rice will result in a lower blood glucose response and feed the helpful critters in your gut. Both good things. But before you go digging into that store-bought potato salad on a regular basis, consider avoiding the seed oils and making your own. I'm a fan of lemon juice, olive oil, salt, and fresh herbs myself. I can rarely be bothered to make my own mayo, although that's also a good option. Next question. Anyone have a recipe using raw potato starch that can be easily incorporated into a primal paleo diet? Meat, eggs, veggies, occasional fruit. I don't do smoothies, nor do I do fruit juice or yogurt. Hmm. Aside from smoothies, sparkling water is the best vehicle I've found for potato starch. The bubbles seem to enhance the dispersal of potato starch granules into the medium, even without a blender. Just a fork or even a quick stir with your index finger is enough to get it completely mixed in. Next question. So, what to use? Bob's Red Mill potato starch or Bob's Red Mill tapioca flour? Potato starch seems to be the most reliable way. From reading the comment sections on blog posts on various forums, the digestibility of tapioca starch or flour varies from person to person. Many people seem to get elevated blood sugar after taking a tablespoon or two of the tapioca, whereas potato starch is almost invariably indigestible. Next question. Can the potatoes be fried in lard and then cooled? I would rather try a yummy food source than a powder. A few weeks back, I described my method for foolproof, easy, crispy root vegetables. You pre-bake them and store in the fridge. This increases the RS content of the potato. When you're ready to fry them, simply peel the skin, cut them up into desired shape, cube, fry, etc., and lightly pan fry them in the fat of your choice. Lard is a great option. Since they're already cooked, you don't need a lot of heat or a lengthy cooking time, and the RS is preserved. Next question. If we're taking probiotics with RS as well, what is happening? The bacteria and the probiotics are starving? But don't they eat other stuff besides RS? Sorry, I know I sound like a boob, but I'm still a little confused. No, the probiotics can still help by partial colonization. But for the best results, you'll want to provide food so that the probiotics have more lasting power and can hitch a ride into the colon where they can do the most good. Feed the animals. They aren't bears, and it's not Yellowstone. It can be resistant starch and or any other prebiotic fiber. The point is to feed them stuff they can eat, thrive on, and ride on. RS fits the bill. Next question. How does this need for RS fit into the grok lore? What did our paleo ancestors do that we aren't doing? As I've written before, wild tubers, roots, and other underground storage organs are frequently highly fibrous with lots of indigestible starch. That's what Grok would have encountered, not the smooth, starchy goodness of a russet potato which had to be selected for by the experienced hands of agrarian tuber breeders. We can't all eat dirt-encrusted cattails rich in resistant starch, but we can approximate the effects with modern tools. 
taking soil-based probiotics and emphasizing preparation methods that maximize resistant starch content is, by all accounts, an extremely primal and biologically appropriate way to emulate one important aspect of our evolutionary metabolic environment. Next question. Any thoughts on the resistant starch found in Quest Bars? Quest Bars contain isomalto-oligosaccharides. The makers claim this is a resistant starch. It's not a resistant starch per se, but rather a prebiotic fermentable fiber. Studies indicate that while its consumption does improve constipation and increase production of the short-chain fatty acids, SCFAs, propionate and acetate, it does not increase production of the most beneficial SCFA, butyrate. Last question. Is consuming RS the only way to feed our gut? No, definitely not. Other prebiotic substances matter, like various plant fibers, inulin, pectin, dark chocolate, and even connective tissue. Yes, animal fiber, the crunchy gristle and cartilage too many people discard. With a primal eating plan rich in plants and whole animals, including bones and broth, you should be getting plenty. But resistant starch is an important, unique prebiotic that makes feeding our gut a whole lot easier and more effective. Whew. That's it for today, folks. Thanks for listening.